before we get back into our study from this morning, I just wanted to make note of a few resources that I found helpful. Uh, there's an old book written in the mid-60s by Alfred P. Gibbs called Christian Baptism. Uh, in my reading from different places, trying to put together an understanding of Christian baptism, I have not found this book's equal. And so uh, if you're able to get a hold of it, I would recommend it if you, if you have friends who have questions about all kinds of things, infant baptism, household baptism, uh, why people baptize sometimes dunking three times versus one, and, and in all kinds of situations, like a great book, I highly recommend it. Um, if you can't get a hold of that, but you're looking for a more brief, concise, this one is put out by Everyday Publications. It's kind of a the cliff notes for that book right there. And we have several here at the chapel, and I'll put, put them in the back after the meeting for that. Uh, I know we have several leaflets about the Lord's Supper and about the head coverings, the other two symbolic commands we want to look at tonight. Um, I couldn't put my finger on some that I've distributed to others, especially the one on the Lord's Supper. I know that David Glock has done one recently uh, called Our Reason to Be, about the, the centrality of the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ in, in the, the Lord's Supper. Um, uh, there's a number of them out there, but uh, I think we've had, we got some various flyers out there. I just couldn't put my fingers on them. Uh, but uh, if any of you are looking for uh, more notes on this whole series, Randy Amos's book, uh, on the church is also very good. So those are just a few that have been a blessing to me. I know there are others, but um, there you go. Uh, let's see. Can we pray? Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that we can depend on it, not just in its general teaching, but also the specifics. We know that, that, that as the argument came to, to uh, identify Christ as our Savior, the argument of the apostle came down to whether the word was singular or plural. That little S on the end of the word was an argument to let us know that our Savior, the, the fulfillment of that promise was one specific person. That seed, the descendant of Abraham, Jesus Christ our Lord. And we thank you for him. We thank you for this opportunity once again to take a look into your word. Help us to know how to put it into practice. We pray that you would guide our time together this evening to be to the honor and glory of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, which is his name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> All right. Am I on here, Jason? I'm going to move this one away. Very good. Um, <clears throat> this morning, as we saw, we're looking at uh, some of the apostles' teaching regarding the New Testament church and how we function, primarily concentrating on what we are calling the symbolic commands given to us in the New Testament. The The... Much confusion exists today over what is considered the ordinances of the church and uh, what is a biblical tradition. You know, we look in the, in the New Testament and the Pharisees rebuked Jesus for his disciples not following the traditions of the elders of their day, right? But he said, no, why do your traditions, uh, uh, in following your traditions, you break the commandments of God? The commandments of God need to take priority. And so we want to know what are those. And so without going back over that whole thing, identifying that, uh, we said that there are, well, three questions that we want to consider. Were these things commanded by the Lord, practiced by the apostolic church, and expounded upon in the epistles? And so we're looking for those things. We looked at baptism this morning, and uh, it was commanded by Christ to his disciples. They did practice it, and um, I tell you what, reading through the, the book of Acts and seeing what they practiced, very insightful um, but we're not going to go back to water baptism this, more, this evening 
It did picture for us the gospel, and that's one of its main purposes, is to portray to the world what has happened inside of us as believers when we put our trust in Christ. But now we're going to come to our second of the three symbolic commands, that of the Lord's Supper. And uh, uh, it was indeed commanded by Christ. And all four of the Gospels mentioned this Passover dinner that the disciples shared together. And I think it's very interesting that these should be linked. And I did not get them into the PowerPoint, but if I could just read for you, and again, this is uh, some insights from Randy Amos on contrasting and comparing the Passover with the Lord's Supper. Very, very interesting. Because you see, when the Jews were leaving Egypt and God gave this commandment for them to perform the Passover, and, and Exodus chapter 12 goes through the details of that feast that they were to do, it, it was to picture for them, as well as to be a reminder to them of the work of their salvation, where that shed, the shed blood of that lamb was applied to the doorpost and the... the um, the angel of death would pass over them if it was applied, but it became a symbolic feast of theirs to remember their deliverance through the Passover lamb. But Jesus Christ, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, is called our Passover. And so, as he established the church and gave us commands, he's given us a feast to remember our salvation, being set free from the bondage of sin through the shed blood of our Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world, Jesus Christ Himself. And so, interestingly, if you look in Exodus chapter 12, it calls that feast the Lord's Passover. And what does 1 Corinthians 11 call? Well, that's where we get the name from. You know, if you've ever wondered why we call it the Lord's Supper, right? A lot of people call it communion. Um, and both words are found in the Scriptures, right? If you look at 1 Corinthians 10, 16, it says, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The, ble the bread that we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? And so there's this partaking of and sharing in the body and the blood of Christ, which we all do as believers. And we commemorate that in this symbolic feast that we uh, uh, obey His command to do. Uh, so the word communion is often used for that. But also notice here in his instruction to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 in verse 19, he says when they're coming together, he says, there must be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. Right? It was the Passover Supper, but it's become to us as believers the Lord's Supper because he took out of that Passover feast that bread and that cup and said, these are pictures of my body and my blood, which will be shed for you. And then he said, what? Right here in 1 Corinthians 11, we read, he said, to do this in remembrance of me. And so if you look through the gospel records, as I put up here, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record him actually breaking the bread and highlighting the fact that this cup was representative of his body and blood. But the full verbiage in the gospels is not quite the same as it is here in 1 Corinthians 11. Um, Luke 22 is the closest. That's why I put them side by side. John's gospel goes through part of the meal, but doesn't actually highlight him taking the bread and the cup. We, we see that when we put them all together, that it was there. Um, <clears throat> so I didn't put it here, but the actual command to perform this is indeed there in the gospels. And uh, Paul highlights it for us here because he says, I received from the Lord, verse 23, that which I delivered to you. 
And he tells us, again, he quotes the words of the Lord Jesus where he said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. So we call that the Lord's Supper. The Passover was a memorial feast. And I should say this, uh, I had it in the notes later, but I want to say it while I remember. See, there's a lot of confusion and debate over the specifics of the Lord's Supper. Don't you know the enemy would love to wreak havoc with such a beautiful and important command of the Lord Jesus for us to do? He said to do it in what? remembrance of me. It's a memorial feast. That's what the Passover was for the Jews. After the first one, they didn't go apply it to the doorposts and wait for the angel of death to pass over. It was a memorial feast. And there are people today who will say that when you partake of the Eucharist, the Mass, the communion, that when you put that bread in your mouth, it actually becomes the body of Christ again, and we are sacrificing Christ all over again. When you take of the wine, it becomes the blood of Christ, and it's a a re-performing of the sacrifice of Christ all over again. Theologically, they call that transubstantiation. That's not what the Bible teaches. Now, I can see where they might come up with that, but you're not being consistent with your treatment of the scriptures. John chapter 6, Jesus said some hard things to his disciples, and he said, listen, unless you take my body and eat of it, unless you take my blood and drink of it, you have no part, you cannot be my disciple. And a lot of people fell away from him. They're like, this doesn't make some sense. It's too hard of a saying, and they fell away. But what was he saying? You must receive me personally yourself to have any part with me. His body was going to be shed for them. There's got to be that intimate, united identification with Christ. And they were not willing to do that. But he didn't mean for them to take his, his, his flesh and chew on it. <clears throat> and so, there's, some, there's another group that would say that when you, when you take the communion, or the Lord's Supper, you partake of it, it doesn't actually become, but, but the presence of Christ is there with you in the bread and in the wine. And they call that consubstantiation, I believe. But both of those, you can't, substanti- you can't substantiate that from Scripture. It's a memorial feast. And we, it has no saving virtue. And again, I would, I would appeal to you to, to look in the Scriptures. Judas was there. He took of, the, of, of, of that Lord, Lord's Supper. He's not in heaven. So it didn't do anything for him. It was a memorial, symbolic feast that he gave. Um, another similarity um can't go there it was temporary right Uh, hebrews mentioned that it was it was until it was opposed on them until the time of reformation but when christ came the new covenant was ushered in right and so jesus said this is the new covenant in my blood but he also said look do this what until i come it looks back memorial but it looks forward it's temporary and one day we'll we won't have to do it to remember him just like when uh, you have a loved one who comes home, you don't just sit and look at their picture anymore. You, you have them, right? And so, you, shame on you if your spouse comes home and you're still consumed with the picture on the wall rather than, than them, right? And it was to be repeated often, right? Every year the Passover was commemorated on the 14th day of that first month over and over again, regularly to remind them. And you know, Jesus said, as off, the Bible says, as often as you do it, you show forth the Lord's death until he comes. That's 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, right? So uh, <clears throat> when we get into how often, let's look at what was practiced by the apostles, right? In the book of Acts, it gives us what their practice was. And, you know, I remember when I was younger, 
and I, I, I tried to settle myself in the Asheville, North Carolina area, and I rented an, a, a little trailer for a few months from a lady who was um, Seventh-day Adventist. And I wasn't familiar with this, these passages of Scripture. I wish I would at that time because I didn't exactly know how to convince her. She said, if you, well, what day do you worship the Lord? I said, on Sunday. She said, well, you, so you follow the Catholic Church. Because she believed that you should worship on the Sabbath, on the seventh day of the, the week. But, you know, what was the pattern of the early church, right? The Lord commanded them to do this in remembrance of me. But Acts 2, verse 42 says, okay, they continued steadfastly in doing this breaking of bread. But then if you go forward to verse 46, it tells us that they continued uh, daily daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Now, it's difficult to know exactly whether this breaking bread was having meals or whether it was specific the Lord's Supper. However, um, the term of the breaking of bread is often used specifically for the remembrance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and also, they would have meals together. That was the what first Corinthians was talking about. He said, you come together to have a meal and nothing wrong with that. But, but if you all start pigging out and neglecting each other and you are, are, are not sharing together in the spirit of the Lord Jesus who gave his own self for you, right? I mean, how can you deny that reality by being so self-consumed that you neglect one another? One guy's getting drunk, the other one's starving. He says, you're not coming together to remember the Lord at all. It's your own feast that you've got going on there. But they had the meal and the breaking of bread together. So it appears to me that daily, there, I mean, look, there was 3,000 believers all of a sudden. How are you going to get them all in one place to remember the Lord? So daily, they were from house to house, sharing together meals, but also breaking bread to remember the Lord Jesus, following his command to do that. But also, notice by the time we get to chapter 20 of Acts, verse 7, it tells us now on the first day of the week... When the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. I promise not to do that tonight. But uh, uh, it says what? It was their habit when the disciples came together. Why? To break bread, to remember the Lord. They were doing it on the first day of the week. And it was weekly, right, by this point. And so much was it a habit of theirs that in 1 Corinthians 16, when there was a need for the, the saints in Jerusalem, and they were going to take up a collection that, that Paul would say to them concerning this collection for the saints. He's given orders to the churches of Galatia. He says, so you must do also. And he says this, 1 Corinthians 16, 2, on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay aside something, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. So he says, when you're together, you're worshiping the Lord, take up your collection then. Each one of you should set something aside. That's why it's at our remembrance meeting where we pass the offering plate here. It's a part of our worship to the Lord, but we're also laying something aside in accordance with the word of God to be a help to those who have need. And, and whether it be missionaries, uh, uh, various ministries, poor, the poor, the needy, whatever it is, that, that's why we do that. And we don't do it any other time. It's a part of our worship as we, the, the, the scriptures instruct. But it says on the first day of the week, this was their habit. And so we would say then, okay, there's no specific prescription like the Passover. On this day, this month, once a year, do it. It just said, as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. And uh, some have suggested, well, was it? Maybe it was a test. You know, it's like saying, I love you to your spouse. You know, do you do it because it's Valentine's Day, or is it? You know, how often should we do it? Right. Well, as often as we can. And uh, it will. 
be a help to us, right? To remember the Lord and to do it regularly as an expression of our love for Him. So, was the Lord's Supper taught in the epistles? We've already looked at it briefly, but 1 Corinthians 11 gives us where Paul now, as one of the apostles, said, I receive from the Lord that which I'm delivering to you. Jesus said, take this and eat it and do it in remembrance of me. And now he's teaching us the significance of this feast. Um, it was a memorial feast. Um, hey, I guess I didn't fix that page. <clears throat> um, just a few things to say about that before we go on to the third symbolic command. He says that if we drink this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, he was looking at their heart towards one another and they were so consumed with self, they were neglecting each other and not being loving. And we need to be careful that we, we examine ourselves. Verse 28, let a man examine himself and then let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Um, we don't want to eat and drink judgment upon ourselves. In that day, it says that there was even some sick and dying amongst them because they were not properly evaluating themselves. This is why I think it's great that we do it weekly. You know, if you have gone through the week and you've lost touch with the Lord and he says, listen, I want you to remember me. Refocus. The symbolism is there for us to remember him and to, to draw near to him again, right? Uh, that's what the command was in, in Ephesian, excuse me, to the Ephesian church in Revelation. He said, remember from where you've fallen. You've left your first love. And so he, he says, come back, right? And he says, do those things you did at the first. Come back and remember Christ. And, and, and in order to do that, let's look at ourselves. Let's look at Christ. Let's focus on him again. That we be not judged. We judge ourselves and deal with those things. If there's something between us and another believer... Matthew 5 would say, leave your offering there at the, at the altar. Go be restored to your brother or sister in Christ and then come back and present your offering. And there have been times in my life where I've, I've come to the meeting and been convicted that there's still something between me and another brother or sister in Christ that I have not dealt with. And I felt like the Lord said, don't partake. You deal with that. And so I did, but I made sure I dealt with it before the next time. Unfortunately, I think there's some of us that just, you know, we'll never get back to taking it because we don't want to deal with the issue, right? But the point is, the Lord wants us to come. He says, let him examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink the cup. Deal with it and then come partake. He wants us to. It's a time of worship. And, you know, this is a, the, why do we, no, it's not prescribed in this passage how we exactly go about doing this. I think uh, there are times where we get a little too, can, I'm, I'm going to say this with fear and trembling uptight about critiquing each other's worship of the Lord that goes beyond what is written. Yes, we want to focus on Christ. It's, it, the emblems represent Him. But we don't need to crucify a brother who gives us a word of exhortation instead of worship. But let's remember that there's lots of time for exhortation. And maybe sometimes those things ought to be to an individual more than the whole group. I don't know, but... but but it's a time for us to exercise our priestly service to the Lord, right? Because uh, as we read in Hebrews this morning, it said, we now have access. We can have boldness to enter this new and living way by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are a kingdom of priests to our God. And so we can come and, and we can offer up prayers to him. We, we can share the glories of Christ with one another to point our hearts towards him as we remember him. There's nothing there. I don't know why I keep pointing there, but that's where they usually are. 
the emblems where we where we come on Sunday mornings and see them, right? Um, so that our hearts can be drawn to Him. They're just symbols, but beautiful symbols as they picture to us Jesus Christ. Our third symbolic command, and you know, I must say, we practice this here, the head covering. We believe it's taught in Scripture. We believe it's meant for all New Testament churches. But everywhere I look, I, I, I don't see people, even, even uh, Brother Gibbs here, he, he, he met in a meeting like ours where they practiced the principles that we attempt to practice in the New Testament church, seeing what he saw in Scripture. And, and I believe whatever meeting, meeting he was a part of had the head covering. But he didn't call this one an ordinance of the church like the believer's baptism and the Lord's Supper. Should, I had to ask myself this list. It's, it's listed among symbolic commands. We see it as something beyond mere culture that we ought to practice. But, but should it be in that list of, along the same par level as baptism in the Lord's Supper? I said, well, let me just see. Can we apply the three-question test to the teaching of the head covering? Was it commanded by the Lord Jesus? Well, you know, when I look through the Gospels, I don't see it. I don't see him teaching or commanding the wearing of the head covering in the Gospels. But when I came back to this passage here in 1 Corinthians, and I see Paul in this chapter, chapter 11, he says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. I see him saying at the end of chapter 14, if anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. He's looking back at this book that he's written. And he's saying, I'm, I'm not just telling you my opinion here. I'm telling you what? The commands of the Lord. And, and, and I said, well, when, where did he get those commands? I mean, Paul wasn't following Christ in those days when Christ was alive on the earth. But what do we learn in 2 Corinthians? It says that there was a man, and he's talking about himself. He's trying to be uh, as modest as he can be uh, about when he was caught up into the third heaven, into paradise itself. And it says... He heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. So much was the revelations that he received. Verse 7, this is 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 12, 7. It says, lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. So he says, so much revelations were given to him then. He doesn't tell us a whole list of what they were. But I can't help but come back to this and say, as he's dealing with these symbolic commands in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, is this one of the ones that the Lord himself gave him as a command? Or was it something just for Corinth? Well, um, in 1 Corinthians 11, he comes back and says, remember, I praise you that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions, plural, just as I have delivered them to you. These traditions, these Things delivered that he received and passed along to them. He says, I praise you that you have been keeping them. And he goes right into this issue of headship, uh, which we'll go into a moment. And then. Um, I didn't write the rest of those verses up there. Um, notice with me just a, 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 uh, an observance. When we go to the question. Huh, I don't know what I did, but I didn't finish this PowerPoint slide either. I'm sorry. What was practiced by the local, the, the early church? Here's something that I noticed in my, my, my going through 1 Corinthians uh, for this study. Notice for a second. I know I wrote it down here. 
1 Corinthians chapter 1. This book is interesting in that when he gives the greeting, he says this. Verse 2. To the church of God which is at Corinth. Well, that's what he says in a lot of his letters. To those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. He's, he's, he's addressing these things to the church at Corinth, but he's also acknowledging that these things are true for all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 17. For this reason I sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. He says, the things that I'm telling you, look, I'm sending Timothy. He can tell you that my ways in Christ, as he has personally observed and heard them, as I teach everywhere in every church. He wasn't just teaching this church one thing and this church another thing. He was he was teaching all the churches, all the doctrines that they needed to know and to practice. It goes on, chapter 7, verse 17. He says to them, but as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches. So his teaching here about marriage. Again, he says, I'm teaching this in all the churches. Chapter 11, verse 16, he says again, it, it, regarding this teaching, coming out of this one we're about to look at, this, this issue of coverings, uncovering for the man, covering for the women. He says, but if anyone see, say, seems in verse 16 to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. It's a strange wording there in English. I would sometimes wonder if he says we have no custom of being contentious, whether he's just saying, listen, there is no other custom. The churches of God don't have an alternative for this. So if you're contentious about it, you need to take it up with God because I've passed along to you that which was delivered to me. Um, chapter 14, verse 33. Now we come to the issue of various operations of gifts. And he talks about tongues. He talks about prophecy. He talks about the role of women uh, 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 in, in the church. He comes to verse 33. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So the things that he's teaching are things that he says, I'm teaching these everywhere, not just to you. I'm not singling you out. These are the things that I received and I'm passing them along because we are the body of Christ. We're in this together. And so there are symbols to be observed in, 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 in the church to help us to, uh, uh, to fulfill our calling. As believers, when we are saved as an individual, he calls us in water baptism to demonstrate to the world our, our identification with Christ. In the Lord's Supper, he says to us corporately to come to exalt him as our head. Right? To lift him up, to remember him. But then here, as we go through this, we'll see he is teaching, I believe, the angelic realm. I mean, here we he's set us free and given us new life. It's come, oh, how did he word that? Gibbs had a good way of saying this. We see Christ dying as, our, as me. In baptism, he took my place. I'm identified with him, so that when Christ sees, when the Father sees him having died, he sees me having died there. So he, but then he died for me. We see that in the Lord's Supper. But now, as one who he has died for, and I'm identified with him, as we go on and function as a body, we get to 
retake the place that we gave up in the garden. Right? Satan stepped out of the realm that he was given and he wanted to be like God. The angels that fell with him, they didn't want to be under God's headship. And so we have the chance to demonstrate by our heart attitudes as well as by a symbol on the outside, which the angels are looking at, of our willingness to take God's place. The man, by saying, I'm going to be under the headship of God, being his representative here in the meeting, and the women to say that they are taking their place alongside them, but as the glory of man uh, alongside him, to let the glory of God show forth and in, in their uh, submission to the, the role that they've been given in silence and the worship meeting and all that. But I'm getting ahead of myself again. Oh, practiced by the apostles. There it was. <clears throat> I guess I forgot to take off that click. There, okay. So it was taught in the epistles. Now, some have said to me before, but there's only one chapter on it. So how important can it be? Well, let me ask you a question. How many chapters in the epistles are on the Lord's Supper? First Corinthians 11. We don't throw that one away. I, I, can't, I can't think of any others that expound on it. And the Acts talk about them breaking bread, but I don't see the teaching in the epistles on it. And so, let's take a look. The context is headship. The clearest way it has come to me, if we can just try to look at this issue of headship as we, as we look at this. Many things are noted as to why... Oh, uh, it's going to be hard. Christ himself was under the headship of the Father. And there's no, there's no way that we would say that there was any inferiority there, any uh, 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 disgraceful thing to be under that headship. He willingly took it. But in that headship, when he said in the beginning, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the, over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the cattle and over every creeping thing. And he put man in, the, in this world. Corinthians tells us that man was the image and the glory of God. I find it difficult to separate the images and the glories and keep my thinking straight in this. But if it's at all helpful to you, this is, this is the way my mind has been able to digest it best. An image is like an icon, a representation. We see that on our desktops and on our iPods and stuff. There's little pictures. That picture is not the program. It's just a, a, a representation of it so that we know where to go and we can see it and we can interact with it, right? But it's not the same as the program. It's an image. Um, man was made in the image of God. God rules absolutely in the universe, in all the created realm, visible and invisible. But what he created on earth when he made man was a realm for man to be in the image of God in this world, the way God is in the universe. And so in this representation, what do we have? We have the father and the son interacting in a headship situation, right? So who of us represents the father and who of us represents the place of Christ in this image, in this world? 
Well, you see it, right? The man is the head in the marriage and in the church. And so in the church, when he, when he wants the glory of God to be seen, he wants that one who represents his image to be the one that's showing forth. And so he says, don't cover your heads when you pray to God or when you're prophesying, speaking from God. Because you are in the representation role of the Lord himself and the way that he interacts with us. To show our place of response to him, the way Christ did to the Father. He asks the woman to put something on her head to demonstrate the willingness that Christ showed in taking the position of, of, of following the headship of the Father. And uh, she being the glory of man, right? In the representation of uh, the image of God reigning in this world, right? Uh, she was created for the man in this partnership. And so she was the glory of man. And he says, cover that glory. So the glory of God is what is seen. But the symbol is about headship. And I believe that's why we have these things mentioned here about because of the angels, verse 10. But besides all the other arguments, uh, man is not from woman or woman was created for man. You can read those. Those are fairly explanatory. But I, I, this just strikes me so much. The angels are watching. The world is watching. But the angels are watching. And you know, it is a testimony to God to say, look, I don't have to break anyone's arm to have them take the place I've created for them. Here's a group of people, new creation in Christ, willingly taking that place, demonstrated in this symbol. And, uh, oh, so much more could be said. Um, it's, it's certainly countercultural, but isn't Christ? Um, he's asked us to partake of a few symbols to demonstrate before him our obedience, to demonstrate before ourselves the significance and the meaning of them spiritually and to be a testimony to him and to draw us back to him and keep our eyes on him. May God help us in our practice. I know that this is merely scratching the surface, um, but may God help us as we seek to apply these things day by day. Father, as we once again conclude our time together, we ask that our focus would be on you. We want to please you. And Lord, we are not doing it as we would like to. We are so encumbered by our flesh. Our sinful nature detracts from the way we would like to serve you. But praise God, we have this hope that someday we will be set free from it entirely. But until that day, and you've left us here as your ambassadors, we pray that you would help us to be faithful at being the light, at being the salt, and uh, fulfilling these symbolic commands in a way that would please you. Help us to do it with grace. Help us to do it with understanding. Help us to understand why you've given them to us that we can share with the world the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We pray this in his precious name.